Hi, this is Pastor Emily McGinley from Urban Village Church, Hyde Park, Woodlawn. If you've been to UVC, you'll know that we seek to be three things, bold, inclusive, and relevant. We know that there are countless folks across the country and out there in podcast land like yourself, seeking a message that will bring insight, hope, encouragement, and joy as we do this thing called faith. Please consider making a financial gift to help us with this work of inspiring, equipping, and sending out agents of gospel life and inclusive love. Just go to www.urbanvillagechurch.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Our passage today comes from Esther chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Listen for what God is saying to you. When Mordecai learned what had been done, he tore his clothes, dressed in mourning clothes, and put ashes on his head. Then he went out into the heart of the city and cried out loudly and bitterly. He went only as far as, as the king's gate, because it was against the law for anyone to pass through it wearing mourning clothes. At the same time, in every province and place where the king's order and his new law arrived, a very great sadness came over the Jews. They gave up eating and spent whole days weeping and crying out loudly in pain. Many Jews lay on the ground in mourning clothes and ashes. When Esther's female servants and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, the queen's whole body showed how upset she was. She sent every day clothes for Mordecai to wear instead of mourning clothes, but he rejected them. Esther then sent for Hathach, Hatak, uh, one of the royal eunuchs whose job it was to wait on her. She ordered him to go to Mordecai and find out what was going on and why he was acting this way. Hatak went out to Mordecai to the city square in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him. He spelled out the exact amount of silver that Haman promised to pay into the royal treasury. It was an exchange for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave Hatak a copy of the law made public in Susa concerning the, the Jews' destruction so that Hatak could show it to Esther and report it to her. Through him, Mordecai ordered her to go to the king to seek his kindness and his help for her people. Hatak came back and told Esther what Mordecai had said. In reply, Esther ordered Hatak to tell Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people in his provinces know that there's a single law in a case like this. Any man or woman who comes to the king in the inner courtyard without being called is to be put to death. Only the person to whom the king holds out the gold scepter may live. In my case, I haven't been called to come to the king for the past 30 days. When they told Mordecai Esther's words, he had them respond to Esther. Don't think for one minute that, unlike all the other Jews, you'll come out of this alive simply because you are in the palace. In fact, if you don't speak up at this very important time, relief and rescue will appear for the Jews from another place, but you and your family will die. But who knows? Maybe it was for a moment like this that you came to be a part of the royal family. Esther sent back this word to Mordecai. Go, gather all the Jews who are in Susa and tell them to give, to give up eating to help me be brave. They aren't to eat or drink anything for three whole days, and I myself will do the same, along with my female servants. Then, even though it's against the law, I will go to the king, and if I am to die, then die I will. May God add a blessing to the hearing and living out of the scripture. Good morning, Urban Village Church. 
My name is Emily McGinley, and I have the great joy of serving as the pastor um, here and in ministry alongside many of the folks that you have seen up front, but many people who uh, help us do what we do and be who we are, but you never really see. Um, uh, people uh, who make food and who greet and set out the signs in the snow and uh, prepare slides for us to view and, and so much more. So um, this is a team effort. It is a family effort, um, and I'm grateful to do that alongside so many folks who are committed to this community. Let's uh, pray as we begin to lean into what God might be saying to us today. God, we thank you for the gift that it is to experience the wonder and the beauty of your creation um, as we uh, take in the snow and as we struggle in the snow and, and really experience what, um, what it means to live fully in our bodies in a world that also changes and grows um, and, uh, and uh, has its own seasons. Um, so help us to, even as we sometimes feel some, uh, a little bit of maybe intimidation or frustration with snow, to also sort of sit uh, in what the gifts of, of the changing of your seasons and, um, and climates might have to offer to us, to slow us down, to help us pay attention, to um, help us feel like we have really made it when we've gotten somewhere. Um, and as we sit in this space, we pray that you would meet us here, that um, in our efforts to get here, that uh, you would um, have ready something to nourish our spirits and our minds, to challenge us with as we move into um, our week ahead. So open our minds, open our hearts, clear away the clutter that often so much encroaches in and keeps us from being still and focusing on who you are and, and what you're trying to do within us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This past week, uh, I was talking with a former UVCer, um, someone who had relocated to another part of the country. Uh, they had been accepted into an elite program that will most certainly open doors um, that only a small percentage of people will have the opportunity to walk through. They shared as we kind of reconnected how they had found a church that was helping them grow in faith and a small group that um, was filled with other folks kind of who were grappling with similar questions that they were um, grappling with. Um, and so, and, and they were just kind of saying, I'm so happy. Um, I'm so happy to be where I am, doing what I'm doing. And I feel like I'm really in the right place. And after sharing all of this, they paused and asked a question. Is it okay that I feel this happy? Now, at face value, it might seem strange or even a little masochistic, right? But if you come from a tradition like the one I came from, an evangelical or conservative theology that elevated being broken before the Lord, kind of like what we sang a little earlier, but in a slightly different, more manipulative way, um, and emphasized your sinful nature, this isn't a strange lesson at all, right? But we'll save that for our sermon series on gaslighting. For this person... <laughs> I knew that the question didn't come from that kind of history. Their conscience was pricked or their spidey sense was engaged and they didn't really know why. And as I reflected with them on the question a little bit more, my thoughts became clearer. There's nothing wrong with being happy. There's nothing wrong with being happy. Everyone actually should have the access to the same kind of contentment and thriving that this person is experiencing. The problem is that not everyone does. And this person who has found joy in the work and the elite learning community that they're in is experiencing something that everyone should have access to in some way, right? And as I shared this with the person, I reminded them that in their privilege, they are obligated to those people, those communities, and those circumstances in some form or faction, right? 
As Christians, we are called to work for a world where everyone can access and experience flourishing and wholeness of life, not just for some who make it in, right? And so wherever we find ourselves on that spectrum, right, we're all on a spectrum somewhere, we're accountable to those who struggle for crumbs while we enjoy a little more bread. And this kind of accountability is what Queen Esther in our passage for today is facing. Now, if you haven't read the book of Esther or just kind of unfamiliar with it, it's really distinct in a few ways. First, it's about a woman, which is pretty rare. It's also the basis for the Jewish holiday, Purim. And and most significantly, it doesn't mention God once. But just because God's name isn't spoken, right, it doesn't mean that God isn't present. One of the miracles of this story is that God shows up in all kinds of places and ways that aren't neatly labeled God. Instead, God shows up in all the ways, actually a little bit like Josiah was sharing, shows up in all these ways that probably most of us experience God showing up. It's a little bit nebulous sometimes, unsure, uh, but through learning to listen to those places and, and people in our lives, right, our community, our inner voice, and the Holy Spirit, all of this then, all of this listening, happens through practices of accountability, practices of discernment, and even courageous action. So if you're familiar with this story, you'll know that it starts with the party of the century, right? King Azuzarius, which is most widely known as Xerxes, was a great king of Persia. He had a huge store of treasure, which stood in proportion to his tiny capacity for thoughtful decision-making. The whole point of the party was to show everyone how wealthy and powerful he was. And after having paraded everything possible out in front of his guests, the last treasure he had to flaunt was his wife, Queen Vashti. Show him what you got, he roars. And after seven requests and seven refusals, Vashti is punished. She won't show her body, so he breaks it. Vashti is beheaded, and there is a new job opening in the palace. After what could only be described as a precursor to beauty pageants um, takes place, Esther, a low-key Jew who was raised by her uncle Mordecai, finds herself in the prized but precarious position of being the new queen. Xerxes is the man without a plan, but with all the power, right? So instead of coming up with uh, his own ideas, he sort of just takes whatever good or not so good suggestions that the people around him serve up. He's the one who makes all the big calls, but he doesn't do it with any intention or grounding or even real thinking, right? So he decides without thinking based on kind of basically the last thing that someone told him to do. There's no discernment of any kind, which is what actually gets him in trouble. It's a dangerous kind of listening, right? Where we pay attention to what other people want us to do, but not to the inner voice or the voice of God to see what's aligned with our values and our sense of purpose. This kind of listening is easily held captive by the expectations, agendas, and shoulds of those around us or the systems which may or may not be aligned with our values. Now, there are some decisions that are not all that worth spending that much time or mental energy on. In fact, a few years ago, I read an article where Barack Obama explained why he only wears gray or 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 blue suits. He said, I'm trying to pare down my decision-making. I want to make decisions about, or I don't want to make decisions about what I'm eating or wearing because I have too many other decisions to make. So eliminating these seemingly small decisions then actually helps him and helps us uh, to avoid what people what is called decision fatigue, right? Decision fatigue is part of why shopping for groceries can be exhausting, right? There are like too many choices. Um, or judges uh, tend to make harsher decisions at the end of the day. 
Avoiding decision fatigue clears space for much more thoughtful and discernment-intensive decisions that we have to make. Because a lot can come between even the most well-intentioned of us when it comes to making good decisions. For Xerxes, it was his right-hand man, Haman, who was totally offended that Mordecai, a lowly Jew, did not bow to him when he was passing by on the street. Haman didn't have to work all that hard to get Xerxes to greenlight Jewish genocide because Xerxes had outsourced his decision-making to him, right? Are there people in your life whose own issues end up on your agenda? People who you are allowing to be influenced by and how, um, but you're not quite sure if their values line up with theirs? But it's not just about being surrounded by people who share your values and vision. That's one piece of it. But it's also about people who care about you enough to call you in when you are straying from them. For Esther, this was key. Not only was she totally cushioned by the wealth and comfort of her new lifestyle, she was also physically removed from her people. If she didn't have people like her uncle Mordecai, who she was committed to and who loved her, she wouldn't have known about the plan for genocide until it was already in effect. And so now Esther has a choice, right? Does she step out and speak up? There are some serious barriers between her and the king, and if she breaks those barriers, there are no guarantees that she's going to come out in one piece. Remember how she got that job in the first place, right? And this brings me back to my earlier conversation about happiness and contentment and our responsibility to one another. It may be that in our happiest, most content seasons, that it is most difficult to pay attention to our responsibilities to one another, right? And this is why Mordecai presented himself at the palace gates over and over and over again, coming right up against potentially breaking a law that said you couldn't come to the king's gate or you couldn't pass through the king's gate in mourning clothes. This is why Mordecai refused the fine clothing that Esther sent out to him over and over again when she heard what he was doing. And this is why Mordecai continued to press her when Esther said that her hands were tied. He rejected her soft refusals and her genteel excuses. There was just too much at stake. He pushes back and he calls her out on her timidness. He reminds her that in the end, this will come back on her. She won't escape this ugly law. He calls her out, but even more, he calls her in. He calls her to courage. Perhaps, he says, perhaps you have come to royal dignity for such a time as this. These privileges you have, the comfort you are experiencing, they're not just for you to wrap yourself up in and abandon your people and feel all good about what you got, right? These are your people. You are them and they are you. Use the power that you have to do God's work right where you are and increase liberation on down the line. You may not be Xerxes, but don't claim that you have no power and influence. Now, if you've been following the reports on or seen the documentary Surviving R. Kelly, you would know that 20 years plus of unchecked molestation of young women didn't happen as the result of one man's actions. It involved systemic participation of the people around him and the broader cultural values that protected him and not the young girls that he violated. It was fellow musicians and producers, every person who benefited from his profits. He was, it was his friends and his family members. Perhaps, perhaps each of those people 
who knew or ignored the rumors that thought they had no power or convinced themselves that they had no power, right? It was law enforcement and even maybe school officials, right, who surely heard of the rumors of the celebrity who was hanging outside of Kenwood High School picking up young girls who were starstruck. And because of all of this participation, passive or active, right, a serial child predator was walked has walked free without an ounce of penalty for over 20 years. Each person, from the music lover who bought his albums to the handlers who arranged for private spaces, each person has power. It may have felt like an impossible situation, right? But each person had some power. Esther knows that Mordecai is right, but the whole situation feels overwhelming and impossible for her. And so in order to clarify her purpose, to sharpen her confidence and arm her faith with courage, she needs to step away before she can step up. It's a big thing that she's about to do. So she fasts, and she prays, and she asks her communities of accountability to fast and pray with her so that she can act with wisdom and courage on their behalf. So I ask you, who makes up your community of accountability? What decisions are you or your community being faced with right now? At UBC, we have big decisions to make around our staffing structure, how that can more faithfully reflect our financial realities. We're also working on strategies for digital evangelism and living more fully into our values around anti-racism. That's this community, right? What are the relationships in your life, like Esther had with Mordecai, right? People that you love and love you enough to call you into your values and challenge you when you need it to act with courage? Who are those people in your life? And who are the people who make up the community that you're called to care for and empower? Again, at UVC, that might look like asking for clarity in this particular space, right, on how you're called to strengthen and participate in the life of the community here through giving financially, adding your gifts to the larger church, or serving on a team like Rich mentioned earlier, like our food hospitality teams or our greeting teams. More broadly, it might be about people groups, right, seeking a more just pay structure so that those who order a federal shutdown suffer the same financial consequences as other employees affected or joining with activists who are working to bring greater visibility and justice for black girls who have been victims of sexual assault, the ones who are least likely to be noticed or cared for. I mentioned last week that we're encouraging folks to begin a time of fasting to help us think through some of those questions for ourselves and our as a community. That fast might look something like the Daniel fast, which uh, many of us will begin tomorrow, and I gave a whole you know, caveat about it last week, so I'm not going to go into it. But the, death, the Daniel fast is a loose interpretation of scripture that features a 21-day menu that's focused on simplicity, exchanging rich foods for fruits, vegetables, and grains, and water. If you have food restrictions or a complicated relationship with food, perhaps a fasting once a week makes sense, or, or it might be a different kind of fast, right? Shopping, screens, makeup, or mirrors. There's a handout, there are a couple of handouts available over there on that table for you to kind of get some ideas about what that might look like. As Christians, there are a lot of practices in our tradition that help us to try to clear away the clutter in our minds, not just to make better decisions, but so that we might hear God's spirit more clearly. 
Our circumstances might not be as dramatic as what Esther faced, but living faithfully requires courage and always requires discernment. For Esther, she knew she could not say no to her community, and so she was ready to act with courage. She says, if I perish, I perish. She was ready for whatever consequences might come her way. What she needed, though, was the Spirit's guidance on how to do it well. Howard Thurman, a minister, a spiritualist, and an activist, once said, knowing what to do in our circumstances is in itself a gift from God. Knowing what to do in our circumstances is a gift from God. Our lives are laced with all kinds of moving parts and uncertainties. So we use the best judgment that we have and the resources available to us. We present ourselves to our communities of accountability for challenge and for clarity. We position ourselves in prayer and fasting for deeper spiritual insights to live and act more faithfully. We do our part, all that we can do, and then the rest is up to God. I heard someone once say that, like in the story when Moses hears God calling to him in the desert, there are burning bushes everywhere. What are your burning bushes calling you toward? Who are your communities of accountability, and how are they calling out your name? What are the questions that you're wrestling with, the circumstances that you need to to gain clarity in? Perhaps your life is so full and so chaotic that you don't even have time or space to discern what that question might even be, right, before you even know that you need to have an answer. These next few weeks are an opportunity to do that, to take time for clearing away the clutter in your mind and your heart, whether that's through a fast or something else entirely, to tune your heart to God's voice, as the hymn says, and see what is revealed to open yourself up. Who knows, you might... Save your own life, or even the lives of others. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for the gift it is to participate in your work. And we admit to you that sometimes we are afraid of what that work demands of us. We admit to you that often we pack our schedules and busy our minds with tasks that create a barrier between ourselves and what it is that you're asking us to do or be in this world. And so help us to take seriously your call to partnership in liberation and life in this world, that we might be able to have the courage to pursue discernment, greater clarity, and greater courage to participate in your work more fully and more authentically not just for the sake of ourselves, but for the sake of a world that is suffering because we are unwilling to open ourselves to your work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.